Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Utah Film Pod. My name is Josh Terry. I will be your host, and I am joined by Mark Larocco. Mark, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Excellent. I'm glad. I'm glad you're doing excellent. I'm glad you're here for episode 54. Uh, we had a good time last week talking about stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember what stuff we talked about. I suddenly went blank as I'm trying to remember the stuff we talked about. But I, uh, I'm looking forward to the stuff we're going to talk about this week, too. <laughs> well, there was Shazam. I remember that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But on to, on to the new things, you know, because that is so last week. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got a new movie to talk about tonight um, and that's coming out this weekend. We also have some stuff to cover. We've been doing some research, we're doing our own research. We have some thoughts to share. Yeah. Mark, we have thoughts. That's right. Yes. But first, let's talk about some thoughts regarding a new movie from Zach Braff. Uh, you remember Zach Braff, don't you? Oh, yeah. He was the uh, Garden State guy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. He, he, he directed and starred and I'm assuming wrote Garden State, mm-hmm. which was, man, was that like 20 years ago now? I think it was around 03. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. So, but but then I think most people probably would recognize him visually as the guy from Scrubs. Did you ever watch Scrubs? Um, I never did. I, I remember seeing pieces here and there, and it was pretty funny and kind of different. But I, I've never, I never got into it. Yeah, it took me a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I finally started watching the series a couple of years ago. Um, the whole thing is set at a hospital. So it's, it's a bunch of doctors who are, I believe they're, they're doing their residency. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of Zach Braff's breakout. It was very, uh, very fun and, and, and very, very witty. Um, and he was pretty much like the lead role in that, in that series. Um, but, uh, then of course he has gone on to become a writer director as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's Garden State. Uh, now uh, this weekend is a movie called A Good Person, uh, which he is he does not star in, but he did write and direct it. Uh, it stars Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman are the main two uh, actors, and it is it's kind of an intense movie. Hmm. Um, there, there are, there are light moments. Like if you're coming to this, knowing who Zach Braff is from scrubs, this is not going to be anything like scrubs. Okay. And I don't know that it's going to be that much like garden state either from what I remember. It's been a while since I've seen garden state. Um, but, uh, even so this is the story of a young woman. This is uh, Florence Pugh. Her, her character, na- character name is Allison. And she starts off kind of uh, at her absolute best. You know, she's in her kind of mid to late 20s. She's engaged, uh, has this very, you know, loving fiance. Uh, She works, I believe, as a drug rep. Uh, So she's in sales. And they're, you know, of course, they're at their engagement party. They're getting ready to get married. Uh, Everything is looking wonderful. And then she is out on the highway uh, with her fiance's sister, and her sister his sister's husband and they get in a car wreck and allison is the only survivor and this it's so there's wait i mean every movie to a yeah go ahead does morgan freeman play god or an angel (laughs) he does not play god i'm hoping not okay but but (laughs) it is it is interesting to note Mm -hmm. that he does add some key narration to the beginning and the end of the movie, which hmm. is a very Morgan Freeman thing to do. Yeah. They're, they're. And and his character, uh, who is the father, the estranged father of the fiancé, mm-hmm. um, he, he has a, a passion for model trains, which has a bit of a godlike element to it in that you are kind of creating your little world of, of homes and people mm-hmm. and and you know the downtown areas and all that stuff uh so so yes and no i think would be the best answer to your question okay. um so so they get in this wreck and allison lives but her future about to be sister-in-law 
and her husband both die. Um, this, uh, there's, there's a lot of cause and effect here. Like, I mean, I, every movie to one degree or another is about cause and effect, but there's, that's really kind of the strong driver in this movie is that this wreck, um, it, it breaks up the engagement. Um, the, the sister who passed, who, who died, uh, leaves behind a high school senior daughter named Ryan and she suddenly is going to be taken care of by the Morgan Freeman character, who is her grandfather. Mm-hmm. So most of the story kind of revolves around Allison and Morgan Freeman's character is called look this up, uh, Daniel. And so because... there are questions as to whether Allison was paying attention before the wreck because she was kind of looking at her phone. Uh, there is some hurt feelings beyond the regular kind of tragic hurt feelings, you know, involving family deaths and stuff. And as a result of this, uh, after in, in the wake of the accident, not only does her engagement fall apart, but Allison becomes hooked on uh, painkillers and kind of she loses her job she winds up moving back in with her mother uh, who's played by molly shannon um and things just kind of go from bad to worse suddenly she's like at the local bar trying to hit up her old high school classmates for oxy after she runs out of her own prescription and and it just gets really kind of dark and she's a drug drug rep right wasn't she working at a drug company right right uh she winds up kind of uh, engaging with, with, uh, you know, like I said, with, with Daniel, uh, starts going to a support meeting. Um, and I don't know, I mean, so, so there's, it's very much a interpersonal drama, you know, because everybody has tension with everybody else. And, and, uh, Ryan, the, the teenage girl, uh, Morgan Freeman, Daniel is struggling to understand how to raise his granddaughter because his, he, he was not a very good parent himself. Hmm. Um, I think that the, he's, he's also a recovering addict and had problems with physical abuse and things. It's, I mean, it's a very, very timely and thoughtful movie. Um, I, it's hard to say that I enjoyed it because I don't think you enjoy a movie <laughs> like this. Uh, but I did think that certain elements were very, very good, chiefly the performances from uh, Florence Pugh, which which I expected because she just seems to do a good job with pretty much whatever role she gets. Um, but this one was a real kind of standout for Morgan Freeman as well. Um, he really was asked to go some places that I don't recall seeing him go in his past performances where he, I mean, he's the kind of actor that you could kind of plug him into anything and because of his voice and his presence, it's just going to elevate. But it felt like he was even kind of going beyond the the effortless thing and, and he, you know because he's he's a real yeah. tragic character himself he's he's got gravitas huh yes and, and isn't he about 80 i mean like i i, I think so i think he's I think really so. close if not 80 but yeah I, I yeah florence Pugh is good in everything i've seen mm-hmm. seen her in um like little women i think i told you i watched last year for the first time yeah um but i was gonna ask you oh so i was thinking about the title I wonder if it means maybe it's saying you're a good person, but for, or maybe in spite yeah. of your disease of addiction, because if, if addiction is really a disease, it's, and you know, often it starts with bad choices, maybe like mm-hmm. you make one or two bad choices and you become addicted, but maybe they're trying to say like, could you be a good person in spite of, uh, yeah. you know, this, this addiction? And, and, it, and it sounds like she was a good person at the beginning of the movie too right like maybe the first yeah so huh you know i was thinking about a movie that i saw that's about addiction really it's about alcoholism and it was called the lost weekend it's the 1945 best picture winner directed by billy wilder um so that's the first i think the first movie i ever really remember seeing about an alcoholic addiction or about you know somebody trying to get sober and you know i remember the guy one of the things he does is he like had a bottle you know in movies where you see alcoholics, they tend to uh, 
you know, hide bottles everywhere, or they'll have a flask in their, in their drawer, or one behind the door, or one in their jacket. And one of the things he did is he had one hanging out his window on a string or a rope that he could pull up. So no, no one would really know that it's there. He'd be the one pulling it up. And um, he's, he's a writer in New York, you know, and trying to get sober, but just struggling with it. And it was a, it was kind of a harrowing movie. And I think for its time, and maybe it's one of the reasons that the critics liked it and the, the voters liked it and it won, is it was pretty, pretty dark and kind of hard to watch. But it's not, it, it, you know, it's not like rated R or anything. It's just not for kids kind of a movie. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, that's another addiction movie that probably kind of a, a lost classic, you know, pardon the pun. It's not a movie you ever hear about. You never hear him talk about, but it mm-hmm. was like the big movie of that year. Well, so do you recommend it? Like, <laughs> would you would you say go see yeah, it or don't? I, like I said, the, the performances are very, very good. Uh, I, I liked... I think when I walked out of the theater, I told the the studio rep that I was like 85 to 90% yes, where I I liked that much of it. Mm. Um, Some of the messaging I wasn't crazy about. Uh, There are certain plot threads that resolve in a way that I don't, it's, I don't know. And I, I, I think we've talked about this before, the idea of the difference between a well-made movie and a movie that well like how how do you evaluate or how do you position a movie that is well-made but says something you disagree with versus something that is very positive in its messaging but just very poorly made Hmm. right because and i think we talked about the godfather how you know this is a, a a world that you know, they're very reprehensible people, but it's it's really kind of dramatized and kind of yeah. made, you know, and I think you brought up the 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 point that, that Ebert made about being kind of its own little self-contained universe. Yeah. Um, it's like, who are, you, but, who are you supposed to root for? No matter who you root for in The Godfather, yeah, it's a bad no, exactly. person probably. Right. You know. But then, then on the flip side, there are all kinds of movies that I've seen where the the filmmakers and everybody involved has really great intentions they're trying to say something really good but the movie just stinks because it's just poorly put together yeah, and poor incompetent etc yeah exactly um i i say that i'm like 85 to 90% on board with a good person because i like and endorse that much of the movie but there are some reservations that that i wasn't crazy about that would stop me short of saying, oh, this is just incredible. You got to rush out and see this. So here we're coming in maybe three to three and a half stars out of four, I guess (laughs) if I had to slap a rating on that, Mm -hmm. on that movie. One of the things I do remember um, from, I think it was either last week's podcast or was the one before. And this is, this is a conversation you and I've been having about the preponderance of big budget, uh, sequels and prequels and reboots and etc. Mm-hmm. Um, because, well, and there's there's no, you know, we're not the first podcast to address this by any means, but I kind of got to thinking how many, you know, as we as we go back over the the top box office movies. Mm-hmm. For the last several years, how many of them are what we could call original movies versus movies that are a sequel, a reboot, a prequel, or some other kind of, you know, piece of an existing IP, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Um, Because without looking up the results, I'm pretty sure that there are a lot more of the unoriginal films that are getting the top box office receipts than there are the original films. Um, And as I mentioned before, we did some research and learned that, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what's going on. Yeah, I mean, Um, (laughs) we did. We looked into Box Office Mojo, which has always been one of my favorite websites. I've always been interested to see how, how much movies make and the top yeah. movie of the weekend and top movies of the year and of all time. And the website did change about three years ago, maybe. And I, I didn't like the change. It actually didn't go to the site for a while because I was so annoyed by 
how much less user-friendly it was. Um, but I've, I've gotten used to it again. Um, like, for example... So what, what changed? Yeah. Well, one of the things they because changed I used is to... they used to only show you the calendar, the, the, the releases, like, in-year release box office numbers. But now you can toggle between calendar releases and in-year releases. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a little confusing for me. So, for example, um, like, like, for example, uh, the movie uh, Avatar... It's if you go if you talk if you put it under calendar release um, for 2023, like what movie has been making the most money in 2023, it'll list Avatar, even though it's a 2022 release. So if you change right. it to in year release, it'll eliminate Avatar for 2023. Um, oh, OK. And that happens a lot because a lot of times every year there's a big movie that comes out in December, but then it makes a bunch of money in January yeah. and February. That happened the year before with Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, right. So, but anyway, I thought it was fascinating. I, I did. We did this little project or homework assignment to to um, look and see what the top movies were. Um, and and if you go to Box Office Mojo, it goes back to 1977. Now you can find mm -hmm. grosses of some movies that are before that, like The Godfather and The Exorcist and Gone with the Wind and a lot of the bigger movies. But they didn't list like all of the movies that came out that year. And I'm not even thinking they did anyway for 1977, but there's a lot. I was going to say, the yeah. last, when I was looking at some of those earlier years, it didn't seem like they were listing nearly as many movies. Yeah, I, I don't think they were because maybe it, maybe back then there were a bunch of studios that didn't keep track of those numbers. Like, I, I don't know. But, like, yeah. if we start with more recent movies, I we were kind of trying to figure out, like, the movies that are making the most money out of the top 10 of each year, say, and this is domestic, mm -hmm. it's not worldwide. What, yeah. What are right. where are the how many of them are original versus how many of them are reheats, reboots, remakes, sequels, prequels, legacy sequels like Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. You know, like and it's so funny because and and you think about it, the studios pour their money into something that they think can make money and they want people to already be familiar with it. And so, you know, 9 times out of 10, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, <laughs> those big budget movies are going to be already existing IP, you know, right. either an established franchise or something that's being revived or something that's a little bit of a different take, you know, like Joker, for example, um, which mm -hmm. I think I listed in the original part, but that's probably a mistake. But, um, you know, I, and I don't know, maybe there's just also, it is hard to come up with new original ideas um, when there's so many things out there that, people are more comfortable or more familiar with, you know, like, so I don't know. I mean, my, you know, before, before we kind of dig into it, yeah. and, I, and I think that there are some interesting numbers and results to look at here. Um, definitely. There, there's, there's a few, a lot of unsurprising results mm -hmm. and a few surprising results, but my, my assumption going into this, and, and I would still say that this is a pretty sound argument coming out is that, these days, when you when you consider how big the budgets are for even kind of the routine movies, what I'm thinking is that the people making these movies, you know, the studio heads, whoever is green lighting these projects, is, you know, they're they're not going to take a chance on, you know, if if you if you have a promising original idea versus a routine sequel, spinoff, prequel, whatever. And you're trying to decide, okay, well, what are we going to throw 50 to $100 million plus at? Well, they're going to go with the safe bet, mm -hmm. right? And, and so I think that that has got to be a big part of what's, what's happening, at least in terms of kind of like the mainstream blockbuster kind of wide release at, at that level is, you know, if we're going to spend this much money, they they want to ensure as as sound an investment as they can. But um, here's the thing I don't understand though. Wouldn't that have been true twenty or thirty years ago? Right? Like wouldn't wouldn't I mean they're 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 all, it's all a money business, right? They need to make their yeah, money. Right, they have to hire right. directors, they have to hire directors, and so like for what at least what they've marketed and pushed and maybe put their money into. Because one mm -hmm. thing that I did um, in fact, I don't, this is something, I don't think I sent it to you, but it was a little bit more recent. I looked at the top, just the number one 
box office movie of each year. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, for the last 20 years, other than I would say American Sniper and Avatar and maybe Spider-Man, I don't know if that would even count, but I'm talking about the very first, you know, Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Okay. In the last 20 years, there's only three original quote unquote movies that have been the number one movie of the year. And, and yeah. of course, Avatar has now spawned a bunch of sequels, but that was a huge gamble. I mean, that was a big Jim Cameron move, but um, that is, everything else has been, you know, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Shrek sure. 2, whatever, you know, all these kind of movies. Now, now they're almost all Avengers type movies, although this year we had the Top Gun Maverick, Top Gun Maverick. But like, yeah. but then I, so I thought, well, let me go back even farther because, you know, Star Wars has been around a long time. Star Trek, Raiders of the Lost, you know, those kind of movies. Well, from 1992 to 1998, here are the top movies of the year in order. Aladdin, Jurassic Park, which is a novel, Forrest Gump, a novel, Toy Story, Independence Day, Titanic, and Saving Private Ryan. Um, which I thought was fascinating. I'm like, I don't even think we could yeah. get a three-year run anymore of all originals. And that was, right. I mean, I don't know if you count Aladdin or not, but, you know, that was seven years in a row. And then even right before that, 1983 to 1990, Beverly Hills Cop, Back to the Future, Top Gun, Three Men and a Baby, Rain Man, and then Batman. I don't know how you want to classify that. And then Home Alone. So that's mm -hmm. another seven-year stretch of mostly or maybe all original movies. I just think those days are gone. You know, that's what's, that's what's different. Um, well, and I think, I think we can kind of come back to that point, too, because yeah. I think that's one of the big questions is, is this what we're stuck with or is this something that could potentially change? Mm -hmm. um, before we get too far away, I kind of want to come back to your earlier comment, which is that, you know, I, I, think, I think you have a good point, which is that the movie-making business has always been about making money. Mm -hmm. And so the, con the concern that I described is still going to be something that would have been in play 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, what I don't know is now discounting inflation, right? I don't know if it costs more to make movies now than it used to. Like when you just, just in terms of the effects and, and all of the, you know, the, the CGI, how, I mean, we look at the Marvel movies and we see like reams and reams and reams of names in the credits of like all the people that are involved with this. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm kind of reaching here, but I don't, I would be interested to know if the threshold for getting a movie made is different now and, and versus then, um, I don't know. Does that make any sense? No, I, I, I wonder about that too. I, I don't know what, you know, what the difference is there. Um, in terms because it, I mean, it seems clear to me that these days it's just very, it's just a lot easier to say, well, the safe bet is just to go with the existing IP because we have a built-in audience. We know people are going to go see it, mm -hmm. presumably, right? Because it doesn't always work out. Um, I don't know why that might have been different 30 or 40 years ago, because it was. I mean, the, the results that we see on, on Box Office Mojo are very, very telling. You know, mm -hmm. you've already pointed out so, a few things, and I've I've got some things that I thought were very very interesting. Yeah, what are um, what are some things you? Well, yeah. Found? So 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 what I did was I did pretty much the same thing as you, and then I went and instead of just kind of identify like what was the top movie, was it original or not? Um, I just kind of wrote down the the ratio of original to unoriginal um, for every year they've got on file, and. Of course, going into this, I think there are two things to say. First of which is that, you know, our definition of original versus unoriginal has to be kind of, you know, a little little fluid and arbitrary, right? Because one thing I was debating along the way was, well, if it's being if it's an adaptation of a really popular book, mm -hmm. does that count as an original movie? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I know. And, and the same thing you said with, with Spider-Man, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, Spider-Man, the first movie came out in 2002, but... People have been Spider-Man fans for decades right. before that, just in different, you know, different media. So, so admittedly, there is going to be some wiggle room here, but I think the trend will still pretty much stay, stay intact. Um, and the second thing that I would say is that, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with sequels, prequels, reboots, etc. Right. Yeah. Um, I think I think we both kind of feel this way in that, 
If if there you know, yeah if there were I wouldn't be doing this I don't think I would even sure. be doing a movie podcast because that's so much of what we get is, no exactly you know, exactly yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. but but I do think that there is something worth debating or considering about how much original content we're getting versus kind of the easy recycled stuff you know mm-hmm. um, so anyway so. The pattern takes some pretty interesting steps along the way through the last few decades. Um, We only have a couple of years to reference for the 2020s, obviously. But the ratio of original to unoriginal movies in the top tens is one to nine. So basically, we're getting one original big box office hit Mm -hmm. for every nine reboot, sequel, prequel, etc., for what for what uh, year are you doing or what for for the 2020s so oh, like 2020 okay. 2021 and 2022 which very very small sample size yeah but it's you know and and like you pointed out because I think you wrote down some of the ones that are on the top for 2023 for 2023 so far oh yeah and clearly they're not going to stay because we're only three months into the year right um, and they're all less than 100 million you know yeah Megan yeah, cocaine yeah, that's, that, that, list, that list is gonna change yeah yeah, I don't, I don't think Cocaine Bear is going to be topping the list by the end of uh, yeah. this year. Yeah. Um, and then, and just as a side note, holy cow, 2020 was garbage. Well, <laughs> look through that, that list was of the, movies. That was COVID. I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, obviously, there were some considerations to be made, but wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at some of the top money, money getters and woo. Not a lot to choose from that year, we're there. No. Um, anyway, uh, but there's not that much of a difference going through the 2010s. Um, the way I figured it was, it was averaging about two originals to eight unoriginals, mm-hmm. which is not, not very good. Um, now, the 2000s were interesting because the average through that decade was five and five. Yeah. It was it was pretty evenly divided between, you know, originals on originals. Now, again, uh, adaptations might kind of tip the scale a little bit because there were there were definitely a lot of movies that were from very, you know, like Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Right? Like that one didn't just come out of nowhere. That was a very much anticipated adaptation of a very, very super popular book. Right. Well, uh, so yeah, and I, I was thinking too, like maybe one definition you could use is to say, well, what if the movie were nominated for best screenplay? Would it be best mm-hmm. adapted screenplay or best original screenplay? But then I thought that probably doesn't quite work because, you know, for ex- supposedly this unfilmable Dom DeLillo novel from the '80s, White Noise, has never been made into a movie until last year, and so I, I would uh-huh. say that's pretty original, right, for a movie. It, it's not like it's being recycled and rehashed on the big screen. So, you know, technically yeah. it would be nominated if it were uh, for best adapted screenplay, you know, yeah. from a book. Well, I think, I think what you have to say is that we have to put a big asterisk by our yeah. results yeah. because there, there is definitely some flexibility and in interpretation here. Um, so, yeah. So, so it seems like the 2010s were kind of a big turning point in terms of going from kind of a fairly evenly matched uh, proportion distri- distribution to really heavily emphasizing the the sequels, prequels, etc. Hmm. And I think I think a big part of that is MCU. the MCU stuff. Yep. Um, the first now, first I, full I, decade I of the MCU. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I so I went back farther. The 1990s, um, pretty pretty good if you're rooting for the original movies because it was looking like like 7.7 original to 2.3 unoriginal Hmm. each year um including and this is this is one that kind of jumped out as me uh jumped out to me 1993 was 10 to 0 the top 10 movies all top 10 in 1993 were what we would consider original first time movies um, well, that's, in fact, not on, not only that. Oh, oh, there's more. There's more, Mark. That's awesome. I love '93. It's one of the best movies. Because because you have to go in order to find one that would classify that would qualify as an unoriginal. Number twenty five was Three Musketeers, which I have to say 
was at least like that was certainly not the first time that the three musketeers been made into a movie right like didn't they have old older versions of that they they had to have yeah i i yeah yeah i think they had so so that was the first one that was a little bit ambiguous 29 was adam's family values which was a clear-cut sequel but that's 29 so you had to get all the way to number 29 in 1993 before you found one of the top non-original movies so way to go 1993 that is some that's some original movie making there that is um but then you know the rest of the decade you know 94 was 9 to 1 uh 95 was 6 to 4 96 was 8 to 2 97 was 73 98 8 to 2 um 19 so so 93 was really you know dominant for originals 92 was 7 to 3 91 was 7 to 3 and then the 1980s were pretty similar, if not a little bit less. Like it was 7.5 to 2.5, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so there was a transition around when the MCU kind of got going, which, you know, I mean, you can't blame it all on that, but I think that definitely plays a part. What I also thought was kind of interesting was that it was a pretty dominant situation for original product through the 90s and then started to even out in the 2000s Hmm. and i had an idea of why that might have been but i thought i'd get your thoughts first what do you think any 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 ideas i mean i don't have an answer i don't have a i my answer could be wrong but i don't know do do you have any can you think of anything that might have influenced that well i think the rise of cgi is part of it I mean, you're able to uh, get a lot of amazing special effects and have a movie be mostly special effects, um, which a lot of those superhero and franchise-driven type movies depend on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. What's what do you think? No, and I think I think that's that's good. Um, like I said, I mean, I don't I don't have yeah. a a correct answer. I just have an idea. Um, I was also thinking about. Uh, what was I thinking about? Drew Blank. Uh, oh, the internet, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the internet kind of really was kicking into gear around then. But one thing I thought might be kind of an interesting idea was that the first Star Wars prequel came out in 99. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And so I wonder I wonder if there was something about that that kind of said, and it did well. hey, we can, we can go back and we can mine these old ips and bring them back and just keep that money train rolling you mm-hmm. know what i mean yeah that was um, that was the number one movie of 99 by far like it wasn't even close yeah yeah um because i like, like i said i mean i don't think any one of these things are significant enough by themselves that they could be seen as oh well that was what changed everything right yeah but but i do think that the the trends like the watershed moments seem clear enough to suggest that, yeah, I think that people kind of, that, that marked a shift somehow. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So now I did find a couple of other, these have less, well, so lim- I was very amused and maybe, maybe, you know, we're just so far removed from this that it, it doesn't uh, register anymore, but I was surprised maybe a little shocked that in 1985 the number eight movie was police academy two <laughs> like those were big some, those were big movies i mean they were funny well, <laughs> and because the first one came out in 1984 it was number five. Oh, okay yeah so you know i mean i think i think nowadays when you think of police academy if you think about police academy i don't think a lot of people are but you usually think about it as oh well you know half a dozen sequels and this is one of those franchises just kind of went on forever and ever and ever. Um, but I guess the first couple were pretty, pretty darn successful. Um, so I'll, I also, I go ahead. I, I'll tell you something that really stuck out to me. Um, as I was going through the list, at least of the, like the last 15 years or so is it, it kind of increased my already high respect for animated films. Um, mm. I, I found about an average of, almost two animated films a year that were that were originals that that did well you know that are mostly pixar not all of them but i mean when i look at my list uh you know like just in 2008 three of the top 10 movies were wally kung fu panda and horton hears a who 
back to all different studios, I think. And um, Horton Hears Who, I mean, it's Dr. Seuss, but, you know, I don't know if there'd ever been a full movie of it. Um, you know, 09, you had Up, 2010, you had uh, Despicable Me, How to Train Your Dragon, and Tangled, all made the top 10. Um, so, you know, and then later, you know, there's Brave, and there's Big Hero 6, and Lego Movie, and Inside Out, Secret Life of Pet, Zootopia, Sing. Those are over the next seven or eight years. So a lot yeah. of these original movies are these, and it's partly that they're family movies, so that helps. Like, they're the movies that maybe a part of it. when a family goes to see a movie once or twice a year and they actually bring the whole family, they're more likely to go to Sing or Zootopia, give it a shot, than mm -hmm. maybe some PG-13, whatever, you know. Uh, well, and doesn't this also speak to what we've discussed in the past, which is that there are not the same. I mean, we, we really don't see PG movies anymore. The kind of the kind of PG movies that were, yeah. if not completely family friendly, were a lot more family accessible really only exist in animated form now. Oh, it's and true. So, so yeah. I think that I think that the shift towards the, uh, the like the family market shift, I think is is much more emphasizing animated movies now, whereas 30 years ago it might have been Groundhog Day, you know, mm -hmm. or, 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 you know, those kind of movies. Like what would be the last PG-rated movie that's not an animated movie to make the top 10 of any year? To make the top 10? Of, of um, any given year. Wow. I mean, I bet, you, I bet there's not going to be one for 20 years, you know. Like, well, that's going to be a long pause on this podcast. Well, I know. I'm not looking. I just I did find one, though, but I'm back in 99. Runaway Bride was number nine, but that's way back in 1999. And that, that, was, that was just straight up ago. PG, huh? Yeah. Um, um, what about the Harry Potter movies? Because they didn't, oh, good point. They didn't go PG-13 until the third one, at least. Right? You're right. I think they're PG. Like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was PG, and that was number yeah. one in 2001. So, yeah. Sec second one's got to be PG, too. Um, I think it was, uh, let's see, when that would be the third movie, uh, number three in 2002. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think the Harry Potter ones are an exception. Uh, but there's not going to be now, too many. My Big Fat Greek Wedding, that was probably PG. Yeah, it was. That could so, have been, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, even 20 years ago, there's a few. But I bet in the last 10 years, I, I, I don't think we'd find one. You know, I'd be surprised. I would yeah. be surprised. Um, very much so. Uh, let's see. It's not that they don't exist, but they're just hardly ever made, you know. Oh, right, yeah. right. Well, and and I kind of hinted this before as we were as we were talking about what we were going to do for this episode, but I think another thing that is important to note here is that we are looking at the effects and not the causes. Right. We're looking at the results. We're mm -hmm. looking at, OK, well, here are the box office results for, you know, 2017 or whatever. And so so that will tell us what people saw. But I think what's what's even more critical and what we kind of can't do with our our resources, at least with not without a lot more time and effort, uh, is to determine what is being offered. Right. Because as I'm looking at these results, I'm thinking to myself, Okay, well, it's very obvious to see that the shift in box office receipts has gone to remakes, prequels, sequels, etc. And the complaint from people like us and a lot of the mainstream, you know, population is, oh, nobody, you know, Hollywood doesn't have any new ideas anymore. They're just recycling the same old stuff, right? And so what I'm wondering, what I'm really wondering, though, is, are we going to see all of these kind of franchise movies because that's what we want to see? Or is that because that's all that's being offered to us? Mm -hmm. Because I know that another complaint that's pretty common is that, you know, I'll, I'll see this with discussions about kind of sci-fi movies and, and other genre pieces where, well, you know, people complain about wanting to have something other than sequels, but then when a really good original movie like Blank comes out, nobody goes to see it, right? Mm -hmm. I think this was kind of the complaint with, uh, like, like Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which was a sequel, of course. Um, <laughs> or uh, what's uh, the the Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt one from Few uh, Edge of Tomorrow? Yeah, uh, Live Die Repeat. Um, I know that there is also a sentiment that 
we say that we want stuff that's original and new, but then we don't support stuff that's original and new when we're offered mm -hmm. that stuff. And so I wonder if there is part of, you know, the burden on us and that we're just kind of staying with the comfort food well, you know, to use the relation or, but I, but I do, I do really wonder just to kind of you know yeah. cap off the point, is this a matter of us just choosing the easy stuff or is there really just nothing original out there for us to go see that we would see if we had the opportunity? I don't know because I think another part of the problem that we haven't even mentioned yet is streaming and what we're more yeah. likely to do as a people. And even I'm, even though I love originals and I'm complaining about all this stuff is some movies you like are, you're like, I've got to see that in the theater. That's a theater movie. And usually it's a mm -hmm. big spectacle. You know, it's a big blockbustery movie. And then you'll say, well, I'll watch this other movie at home, you know, on, on a platform, which <laughs> just, just it, like I suggested earlier in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Just like in, in, yeah. in, in the olden days, like, yeah, I guess I kind of missed that, but I think that, um, that happens a lot, a lot more than people want to admit because you're like, well, if I'm going to spend $10 or whatever, $12 on a mm -hmm. movie and drinks, and if you take the family, you know, it's 50 or $60, like. Well, yeah. it might as well be, and I don't know, maybe this is original, but like we're, we're probably going to go see Super Mario Brothers movie um, as a family, which I, I don't mm. know, I guess that's kind of original, but you know, Nintendo is just so huge right now and a lot of kids love it. And all, of course, all the people my age love it or we've played it growing up. And I think that movie is going to be huge. Even if it's not very good, I think it's going to make a ton of money, at least, you know, maybe the first couple of weekends. Um, but here, here's a question I have then. Who's our, what's, who's our greatest hope in terms of directors to get, to get out of that, to keep making like those big tentpole movies that are original? Hmm. I mean, Jordan Peele, I don't know, like he, he's done really well with all three of his movies. They're all original. They're just from his mind, mm -hmm. um, but they're not, they can't really be mass. I mean, they're always rated R, you know, there's not like every family sure. and kid can see them, but like Christopher Nolan's the only one I could really think of that's just kind of chuck full of original movies other than his little trilogy of Batman movies, mm -hmm. um, which of course are great. You know, dark, dark Knight is, is really awesome, but like he has like Oppenheimer coming out this week and he had uh, Tenet a couple of few yeah. years ago and Dunkirk was a few years before that. And, and they do pretty well. I mean, Tenet is an exception and part of that was COVID and probably also yeah. part of it is that it was completely confusing. <laughs> incomprehensible but, yeah um so but i mean that i could see him coming out with something almost like james cameron like like inventing some new technology and telling a story on another world or whatever you know a new new race of creatures and yeah. it just makes like a billion dollars um so i i don't know well but, no i yeah. think i think it's a really good question because when you go down the list of recognizable you know, signature directors who have a distinctive style that like, like if you're a fan of a director, chances are that director has a pretty signature style, mm -hmm. you know, just, just like you described with, with Christopher Nolan. And most of the people that I would put on that list are not the kind of guys or women who are going to be putting out widespread mainstream general population movies right like yeah like wes anderson i really enjoy wes anderson but he is a very singular quirky type of guy mm -hmm. you know and um uh now taika waititi is also maybe a little too particular you know i mean i i love so much of what he's done um but it almost seems like like we're looking for the next spielberg right mm -hmm. because because you look through, I mean, that's, I, I wasn't that something that actually worked against Spielberg for such a long time was that he was perceived as kind of a popcorn movie director. He wasn't, you know, people right. didn't well, take him as seriously because he was making Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. and, and not, he wasn't a serious auteur or whatever, right? Yeah, and I guess my point is he... I don't really care about that. It worked, I was kind of talking more along the lines of money makers, money making movies, and he, all three of those movies you just named are, you know, originals. 
Right. I, I guess no, but Jaws that's but that's what book, I'm saying. But yeah. But that's that's what I'm yeah. saying though is that that's why we're looking for the next Steven Spielberg is because he really was mm-hmm. a director of the people. Yeah. Right. Or, or a director for the people yep. because so much of his you know catalog was these big block you know big budget blockbuster fun you know a lot of times family friendly movies that everybody could go and enjoy and and so if if we're if we're assuming that uh spielberg is not going to be leading us into the next 20 or 30 years which you know who knows uh how long he'll keep doing what he's doing it's kind of hard to think of somebody who's who's right now in that position Mm -hmm. um i mean maybe maybe a few years ago i might have said jj abrams you know but it seems like he's kind of veered from the fun original stuff that he did in movies and tv 20 years ago to now he's kind of the you know the franchise guy Mm -hmm. you know he did, did star trek and star wars right yeah. Uh, but when he was doing stuff like like Super 8 and Cloverfield and now now he didn't direct Cloverfield but I think he did I know he was involved in it somehow. I thought he um, did 10 Cloverfield Lane. Or maybe um, not. Maybe that was someone else. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh but then like with all the TV I mean there were so many original TV shows that he was responsible for kicking off like Alias and Lost and you know a lot of those. And and I would have I would have seen him as as that type of that type of director um but now just because he's veered into you know the like i say the star trek and star wars stuff i don't know that you know that's where he's gonna go um Mm -hmm. tim burton probably a little too unique yeah you know what i mean i mean is, is that what we're thinking is like somebody I, who's gonna I, make movies that I, like i'm more thinking of a young person i mean i guess christopher nolan's not too young he's in his 50s but you know like um yeah like who would be the next person to make those kind of movies or or is it going to be a group of people or the next is the it going to be the Bay? daniels you know the daniels i mean they might be just too weird no. <laughs> to make something mainstream that's, but, yeah that's that's what i would say it's like know. they're 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 getting accolades and they're successful yeah but they're not you know, I don't. I don't think that the future equivalent of everything, everywhere, all at once is going to be a billion-dollar movie mm-hmm. series. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. With the budget, it could be because that there. I mean, as far as profit margin, that the movie made a ton of money. It's it's the number one A twenty-four movie of all time, which is you know ten or twelve years or whatever. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I and when I look at some of the top all-time movies. I'm impressed yeah. to see that they're mostly originals. I mean, other than these last the Avengers uh, and now I guess Avatar 2, really a lot of the top movies of all time, like even if you go through decade by decade, like you got Star Wars, you know, E.T. and then Jurassic Park and um, Titanic, they're, uh, and then Avatar in 09, like the, mm-hmm. the movies that really, really, really brought them in were like, oh, it's I want to see something new. Like people that wanted to see something new and interesting, and yeah, I, I think uh, at least that's part of it. But maybe we, maybe that, you know, maybe we're not going to have that anymore either. I don't know. Well, maybe maybe that's the lesson too: is that in the long run, you have a bigger chance of striking it big with something original. Mm-hmm. It's just well, how do I, how do I phrase this? Like the all-time movies are going to be original, but what are the chances that you're going to make one of the all-time movies? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just you just strike gold. Like you just kind of always yeah. get lucky. But and I think so. Kind of to go along with this discussion, um, I listened to this podcast of A.O. Scott being interviewed by another reporter at the New York Times, and he just quit um, recently, like in the last month. He uh, quit movie reviewing. He was the New York Times reviewer. He and okay. Manola Dargis uh, for, I think he was a reviewer since 1999 or 2000. So it was a long time. And he, he basically said he thinks the state of American cinema is just something he doesn't want to be a part of anymore. He doesn't feel like he can curate movies, blockbusters that are franchise driven or IP driven. They're so far away from the movies he grew up enjoying and reviewing. 
Um, and he also said fandoms. <laughs> Maybe he experienced something on Twitter. I don't know. They're very sensitive. <laughs> they're powerful, kind of intimidating. And a lot of these movies now are designed to be critic-proof. He said, like, these studios, they create something so enormous and powerful, it's almost like it's a fact of nature, and it crushes any critical <laughs> voice. So it doesn't matter if a bunch of critics hate it. It could make a yeah. billion dollars. And so he said, fandom is about obedience and conformity. These movies undermine the very notion or very idea of criticism by design. And, and so, you know, superhero movies, they kind of squeeze or crowd out other movies, like, you know, comedies or literary movies that maybe used to get a big release or big wide opening, it just doesn't happen as much anymore. And so he says it's harder for audiences to find movies worth taking a chance on. Um, and then he also talks about streaming a little bit, how that, that may have changed things. Uh, yeah. it, it's, and he kind of brought up a point I hadn't really thought of too much before because, well, I guess I had, but it was I like the way he put it, and it was that now that we have so many choices on streaming, and a lot of them just sit there. So like if we have, let's say, Netflix or Prime or Hulu, and there's a movie on there, it's like a movie that's interesting, and maybe even a movie you've always wanted to watch. Sometimes you're sitting there at night, and it's you know a weekday at 9 o'clock, and you're like, oh, well, I am kind of tired. I'll just watch an episode of The Office instead. You know, and, and it's right there. He said in the old days, if that movie came to town to the movie theater for a couple of weeks, or you had to go to the store and rent it, you were almost more likely to watch it even though you had to pay extra for it than you are now. And I, and I thought, that's kind of ridiculous. But then I'm like, wait a minute, I've done that. I do that a lot. I have a whole list of movies that I want to see that I just haven't seen yet and that I can watch them for free. I guess I shouldn't say for free since I'm paying for subscriptions, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of weird. No, there, there are a variety of factors that I think are all contributing to what we're seeing. And and streaming is one of those ones that probably is going to have a mass, you know, a proportionally massive impact because I've I've seen that already having a big impact on my my process, my efforts, you know, my experience as a as a movie critic. Mm-hmm. And and I just expect it to be more and more of an issue. Um, and I've, I've said this before, but I think that, that theaters, their, their challenge is how do we convince people to come here and see a movie in the 21st century? You know, is it, is it 3d? Is it going to be recliner chairs? Is it going to be, you know, surround sound? You know, I mean, is, (laughs) is it a gimmick or is it? something about the experience itself, you know, I, I think that, you know, when, when we talk about what we love about movies, a lot of times, you know, the, the smell of popcorn and kind of the, Mm -hmm. the experience of seeing a movie surrounded, you know, seeing the movie with an audience. I, I think we both have mentioned how much we've loved certain movies at Sundance partially because the movie was good, but almost more so because it was so fun seeing it with the audience in the context of the festival. Yeah. And, and, and so that stuff is powerful enough that, you know, I don't want it to go away, but, but just like you describe when it comes to a certain time of day or a certain time of night, and I'm faced with, well, I could make an effort and go over here to do this, or I could just, you know, fire up another couple episodes of The Office. Mm-hmm. You're, there's there's an easy move, you know. Yeah. And and yeah, I mean, I and I feel I feel bad because, like I said, I I want I want the theaters to succeed. I want them to stick around. Another 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 longtime theater near me is closed for a second time. Um, I just noticed the other day there's a, there's a little, uh, I think when it originally opened, it was called the Gateway 8. It was in Bountiful. And then probably a good 10, 15 years ago, it closed down and then Cinemark bought it and reopened it. But instead of turning it into a dollar theater, because see that the problem with the Gateway 8 was that it was made in that window of time where they had started making multiplexes, but they hadn't started doing stadium seating and surround sound and all that stuff. And so it was kind of 
the worst of both worlds, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and so when they closed the first time, I thought, you know, I really wish that they would just come in and make this a dollar theater because as a dollar theater it would work. You know, don't spend $10 on the first run meal on films. You can still go out and see a movie for a buck or two like the old movies 10 and Sugar House used to be. Um, but then when they reopened it, I think it was a little less than normal full price, but it was still like a first run theater up until, like I say, just a couple of weeks ago is when I noticed that it uh, had cleared out again. Hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I, want, I want theaters to succeed. I want to have the option of going to movies. Um, but when it's a movie like A Good Person, which is a drama that is not a crowd pleaser in that sense, that's the kind of thing that I'm going to be much more likely to watch at home on a good-sized TV of my own, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, and I guess that's kind of where we're we're taking this discussion, right? Is looking forward and saying, all right, well, we can see where the trend is going. We can see what's happening now. Just like you said, like, who's the director for the, of the future? What's this going to look like in 20 years? I mean, or is it, is it going to be, are we going to go from two originals and eight, you know, reboots to zero to 10? Mm-hmm. And you have to get down, you have to get past the first 50 movies each year before you find something that's original or... Is it is it going to come back? Is yeah. the is the the comic book movie era finally going to bow out? And is Disney finally going to sell off all their properties and <laughs> and we'll get uh, we'll bring back the '80s and '90s and get some more original stuff? I I I don't see any reason that's obvious to say that that'll happen. I I think for me the only thing I can see that's been happening is the movies lately. Um, are doing worse and worse at the box office. There really haven't been huge, ginormous blockbuster MCU movies lately. And some people just yeah. argue, oh, well, there hasn't been a good one in a year and a half. And maybe that's true, you know. There hasn't been one that's just really, really fantastic. But there were some pretty crappy ones that made good money in the 2010s. So, like, I think that maybe that's part of it. And if the trend continues to where these movies really underperform, like, the drop in the third weekend of of the Quantumania movie was horrendous. And so I think that like if, if that keeps happening to where some of these MCU movies that cost a lot of money to make um, aren't making money, they're not going to make them anymore. Or they're going to yeah. do cheaper B-movie versions of them, mm-hmm. or they're going to not get as maybe as many big-name actors, maybe just one. I mean, even like Black Adam, that, that did okay, but it was projected to do better than it did. Um, that was the Dwayne Johnson movie. Right, right. And um, so, I don't know, there's been a, a run of three or four or five in a row that have, haven't have done as well as maybe they thought, but some of them have still done all right, you know. Mm-hmm. Like the like uh, Doctor Strange 2 made pretty good money. Thor, the new Thor movie did. Um, and but you know I don't know it's it, the trend since then has it's kind of gone down and, and that could um, you know and maybe it'll be the rise of the DCU or DCEU whatever they call it you know with James <laughs> oh please Gun. no oh please no <laughs> I I just think we're gonna bless, see bless a lot. their hearts I I am perfectly happy people can keep making comic movies all they want I really am ready for something different though yeah I, I don't want this to go on for another twenty years. <laughs> yeah, I know. I agree. I haven't. I, I haven't like seen all of them. I mean, I've seen most of them, I guess. But I, you know, it's not the thing I look forward to the most. You know, yeah. I'm, it's other stuff. Well, I I find myself kind of toggling between two different ideas. Um, I think both of which we've we've kind of discussed in the past. Which, you know, I'm I'm inclined to look at a lot of our media, specifically movies in the same light that uh that i see music where you know once once the internet kicked in and things like itunes and napster and all that got going music seemed to really fragment and so instead of like a shared experience where everybody kind of knew the same half dozen big songs everybody was just kind of off in the weeds in their own genres and and this idea of a shared cultural experience is something that you know certainly in television like outside of the super bowl we just don't really have because we're watching TV shows on streaming and we're not, you know, it's, it's, it's not live anymore. Right. And so I kind of wonder if movies are going to go the same direction where everything is so fragmented 
you know, partially because of streaming and because of other factors that, you know, there's not going to be those kind of big blockbusters because they're not going to make movies that are just so widespread and, and crowd pleasing. But at the same time, I mean, the second Avatar movie, which still befuddles me, is, you know, how how high up is it now all time? I mean, it's it's in the top That's 10 like all third. time, isn't it? That's third, yeah. It yeah. made $2.2 billion worldwide, and it was the number two movie of the year domestic be, behind Top yeah. Gun Maverick. Um, so I'd, I'd say that's a pretty clear shared experience. You oh, know? yeah. I, mean, I, would, I would argue that Maverick would be more of a shared experience than Avatar. I still, for the life of me, have no idea how that makes so much money because of the, you know, who's seeing this twice? You know, because it, it's... I don't know. It's not going to make that much money if people are only seeing it once. You know, but anyway... Well, I, I reserve judgment because I haven't <laughs> seen it yet. And I do want to see it in the theater, but I still have just not gotten around to it. But it's, uh, I have a feeling it's one of those movies. It's, it probably is, uh, I don't know, blockbustery theater experience yeah. type movie. Yeah. And maybe it'll even be kind of annoying on the small screen. I don't know. Um, but I don't, I, I don't know if, uh, did, I can't remember if you said to see it in 3D or not. Did you say that you liked the 3D? I did. Well, okay. so when I when when they screened it for us, it was in 3D, it was in IMAX, it was the full, you know, the full Monty, if that's the appropriate way to say it. Um, and that's how I would recommend it because it struck me that without those additional features, it wouldn't be that great. Mm. Like the thing the thing that kept me interested in the movie was how it looked because the 3d the the effect the depth like that was cool to look at there was nothing at all about the characters the story the plot the action that was interesting in the least to me and this is coming from somebody who didn't really enjoy the first one either so to be fair Um, but but i would say that if somebody was going to see that movie that's the way to see it because that will that will accentuate the strengths of the movie um, in a way that will be lost if you don't see it that way. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> well, we got we went through a lot today. I mean, this this whole we box did. office thing is it's always been interesting to me. I, I don't know why. I, some people think it's so funny to even care about it, but I I check box office mojo a lot, and mm-hmm. I'm always kind of interested and especially when you see smaller movies that are maybe like they're never number one in a weekend but it's like a movie that came out of nowhere and it like made the top five or top ten in a weekend and um you know sometimes those are the best movies because like they have no marketing very small budget and yet Mm -hmm. people are seeing them in every theater they're showing you know so right right yeah well i don't know any uh Anything positive we could end on? We, we, it's been a little doom and gloomy with this one. Hey, have, you got, have you seen anything that would be worth uh, uh, worth pitching here at the end? Well, not new stuff, but we showed the kids Groundhog Day last week. Speaking hey. of 90, 1993 movies, and it was it was really good. It was uh, sounds great. It was funny because we show all of our boys it, and it had more like kissing scenes than I remembered, and it was more <laughs> of a romantic comedy than I remembered it being. I knew it was sort of this philosophical. Yeah. It kind of started the trend of like living a day over and over for some supernatural reason that no one understands. It's yeah. been done in other movies, but it's more of a rom-com. And I, you know, I think they were a little bit uncomfortable with certain parts of it, but mostly liked it and they liked the idea and just the funniest lines. I think to me, the underrated MVP, I don't know, Sixth Man or whatever the movie is, Chris Elliott. He's just so funny oh, in that yeah. movie. Yeah, that was a good one for so, you. So yeah, like, um, and we watched always. We're we're doing the Spielberg okay. project, so I showed that to Holly and um, another. Well, I guess it's not really original, but that was a remake of a guy named Joe, a movie that Spielberg liked as a kid. Um, although that was set in war, and always is just set with like uh, firefighting planes, you know. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, so I don't know. I haven't I haven't really seen any new stuff lately, but. I do yeah. plan to. Well, sounds good. That that is that is a positive note. Uh, Groundhog Day is a fun one, and <laughs> crazy enough, thirty years old. Thirty years That's, old. I know. Yep, thirty <laughs> years old. 
Sorry. <laughs> I guess that's another negative. Um, okay. Well, uh, thank you, Mark. And uh, thank you all listeners, wherever you're at. Uh, be sure to give us uh, a like and a follow or whatever the equivalent is, whatever platform you're watching us on. Take good care of yourselves and uh, hopefully uh, spring is on the way. Take care. Take care.